0: You're listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom, a weekly show about current events in the world of carbon removal, from technology and innovation to policymaking and job growth. Brought to you by Nori, the carbon removal marketplace.
1: everybody, and welcome to the February 10th, 2022 episode of the of Carbon Removal Newsroom. Today, we'll be focusing on policy, and as such, we have Toby Bryce, who works on CDR Policy Advocacy with the Open Air Collective. Toby, so nice to have you on the show.
2: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Yeah, I'm a big fan of all your um, Open Air Collective YouTube um, shows. I regularly watch those, so thanks for bringing Thank those And then, as always, we have Chris Barnard, Policy Director at the American Conservation Coalition. Hi, Chris.
0: Hello. How are you?
1: I'm doing well. Thank you. And finally, myself, Radhika Mulgofkar, Head of Supply and Methodology at NORI. So today, we are going to be focusing on the Open Air Collective's new legislation that they have brought forth in New York, which is called the Carbon Dioxide Removal Leadership Act. It was brought to the Assembly in January of 2022 by Patricia Faye and State Senator Michelle Hinchi. and it is a proposal that's aimed to use public procurement of carbon removal to help meet the state's emission reductions goals by purchasing enough removals to cover the hard-to-abate sectors by 2050. So it's a big, big bill with really big goals, um, and I think anyone who listens to the show thinks that that's important. Under this law, the state will use kind of a novel approach of auctions to purchase measurable and verifiable removals. And the legislation also mandates that the community benefits and job creation factor into the auction. So they're also trying to make sure that historically marginalized and communities that have been forgotten in the old economy are given front and center in terms of their voice and in terms of their ability to interact and be part of this economy as it moves forward. So it was developed by the Open Air Collective, which is really cool because the grassroots online climate advocacy community. That's an amazing use of technology, I think, and goes to the heart of what Nori loves too, which is kind of the de finance, decentralized world. So with this introduction, I'm going to let Toby kind of tell us a little bit more about the bill. Who developed the policy beyond you know just Open Air Collective? Who within the group did and maybe also walk us through an example how, of how he thinks it will work. So, Toby, take it away.
2: Absolutely. Um, well, thank you again for having me on here. I'm a big fan of the show and, and regular listener. So it's, it's an honor to, to be here with you today. Um, just first of all, open air. So we are an open source, all volunteer uh, climate advocacy collective or group. And we're really focused on the advancement of uh, carbon removal. And we have a team that works on that you've had on the show, I think, or on one of the Nori shows that works on um, open source uh, direct air capture machines. Um, there are a couple projects, Violet and Cyan. So that's really cool. There's an R and D component, and then I kind of work on the policy side. And so we uh, are basically an open source policy development and advocacy group on 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 that part of the house. And um, you know, like when I moved to New York a long time ago, I had a friend who worked at a hedge fund. And part of his job was to write federal legislation that he hand delivered to a Senator who will remain nameless and like it became law. And like so corporations have been writing legislation probably forever and so I think it's really time for uh for citizens to start doing it and I think that's one of the really cool things about open air Um, I think you referenced but we got we developed and got one policy passed last year in New York called the Low Body Concrete Leadership Act which is basically a state procurement incentive to buy low carbon concrete and that bill is actually pending also in some other states in New Jersey and Virginia Um, we've got versions of it kind of on track in a couple other places so our idea is like be a policy lab, originate a policy, get it passed somewhere, and then get it passed in other places. And so for this policy, the Carbon Dioxide Removal Leadership Act, we, you know, once le- the LECLA got passed last June, we started working on this um, in early 2001. And by working on it, I mean, we thought of the idea like, okay, we're not going to get to get on scale if the public sector does not start funding carbon removal, so let's figure out a way to do that. And we started basically just talking to people and we interviewed, I would say upwards of 50 to 60 experts in academia, like some bold place names in CDR. We talked to a lot of uh, researchers in New York who are working on specific CDR pathways at New York universities like Cornell, Columbia, Stony Brook University, like the SUNY, the State University of New York has a great system that's doing all sorts of really cool research. So we talked to people, we learned, we talked to folks in the advocacy community, we talked to uh, carbon removal entrepreneurs. and, you know, eventually formed kind of a thesis of what we wanted to do. And then um, with one of our all-star members who is a lawyer, Jamie Rogers, he drafted a bill over the summer of 21 and um, had a legislative draft by fall. And we started showing it to legislators, uh, senators, and assembly members to find someone who got excited about it and wanted to, to, to lead the, you know, bring it and introduce it into the legislature. And Patricia Faye, the assembly, she's a very powerful assembly member from Albany. She really just got... She's was fascinated by the idea. And so she agreed to take it on and introduced it at COP26. And um, it's in the legislature. In New York, the legislative session runs from January until June. And there's a lot going on. So it's like, a, you know, it's there's there's a lot of noise, or not noise, but like a lot of competing bills and ideas that we have to, you know, compete with for Mindshare. But she's like been a great uh, supporter for this bill. And then very recently, um, Senator Henchy, who is kind of a her father was a legend in New York state politics, and she is uh, a recently elected senator from um, from the Hudson Valley. She's the our sponsor, our, our sponsor in the Senate. So that's kind of how it came to be. So, you know, our idea, like we're trying to formalize this a little bit more into a legis- policy development process, but this is kind of our second one. So we're learning as we go along.
1: Cool. So can you describe how the CDRLA will work if it's passed? What would the government's role be and how would it interact with the private sector?
2: Well, first of all, I would say you did a fantastic job of describing it in your preamble. Um, (laughs) So basically it is, so New York, CDRLA is a policy framework to get the public sector to start buying durable carbon. And so the policy framework has to be adapt. and we'll talk about this, I think, a little bit later, but it has to adapt to the specific jurisdiction where it's being applied. So New York has a a landmark net zero policy called the CLCPA, the um, Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act, which passed in um, 1990, and it mandates New York get to net zero by 2050. And as you referenced, um, 85% of the net zero needs to be achieved by emissions reduction. So like you know it bears repeating emissions reduction must come first like we must put the lion's share of our resources in confronting the climate crisis into emissions reduction and in New, in New York we're kind of fortunate that that's been codified at 85% so like we need to reduce emissions by 85% based on a 1990 baseline which is 410 million tons of carbon uh, co2 equivalent but the remaining 15% the hard to abate emissions as they're defined in the legislation are need, are need to be offset and there is kind of a relatively weak compliance framework that's in the existing legislation that we are kind of trying to take a pencil to and, and write a policy alongside the clcpa because we're not trying to rewrite this like landmark climate legislation that gets new york starting to buy durable carbon removal with a 2050 target of um, this 15 percent which is 61.5 million tons so as you point out the volumes are pretty significant we are starting out very small because a is everyone in the space knows the supply is constrained right now. So like we're starting out in 2025, the state is mandated to buy 100,000 tons of um, of durable CDR. And it's standards-based. So we have additionality, um, durability, verification, MRV, and then equity that are kind of the key standards in the bill. And so the state is basically applying these standards Uh, against a pool of submissions based on a reverse auction mechanism that you you pointed out earlier and bids will come in and the state will decide what carbon removal to procure and um, the reverse auction has a in in 2025 has a cap of $350 which is the maximum average price per ton the state can pay which means basically the state has a 35 million dollar budget to buy 100,000 tons of durable CDR and our durability threshold is 100 years in the in the bill and and the the and it's a transparent public process the winning bids get published just like our pioneer friends at stripes do um, and then the the winning uh, cdr suppliers have a 10 year delivery period and there's a preference in the legislation for cdr that gets delivered more quickly than 10 years so it doesn't have to get delivered in 2025 which i think kind of like mitigates a little bit the sol- supply question because i think we're kind of sc- we're, we're, we're not in a good place pardon my mind, <laughs> if, if we can't, you know, we, we need to scale CDR to have any chance of getting to gigaton scale. So like, you know, hopefully these numbers will be achievable. Um, more I can say, but like, let's, I want to focus on what you want to talk about.
1: Yeah, well, I, I want to bring Chris into the conversation and kind of get your perspective on using government procurement as a way to grow an industry
0: well for once i'm not the one talking the most on 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 this podcast which is which is honestly great for me because i I like listening and that was really interesting Mm -hmm. so we thank you for that i think kind of the the interesting thing about government procurement typically kind of from a conservative perspective is that the most important thing in in a market obviously is competition and and when a government chooses projects without real competition in terms of the projects it chooses that's where real problems start to emerge and, and the kind of interesting thing here, as Toby mentioned, is it's based on this reverse auction system. Um, and if you look at the UK, they did that for their offshore wind industry to huge success. And it's actually a very market-based way of doing it because it drove down the cost of wind because you're kind of basically forcing suppliers to compete for what they're willing to provide this project at for the lowest price that the government will be willing to pay for it and that they would will be willing to do the project for. Um, and so that's actually, actually a pretty market-based, sensible way of going about it. Um, and so, so honestly, I'm, I'm not that opposed to that idea. Um, I think the one question to, to kind of consider is obviously technological carbon dioxide removal is a lot more expensive than natural CDR. And there's, just, there's a question to be had about what is serving taxpayers the most with the money that the government has? Is it the technological kind of uh, route with the promise that in the long run, you will be able to bring that price down enough to be competitive? Or is it really just trying to reduce emissions as quickly as possible with the adaptation benefits that natural climate solutions have as well, like being able to withstand storms and reduce flooding and all that kind of stuff. And so I think there's a a valid question to be had there, but insofar as a way of doing government procurement, I don't think this is a bad policy.
1: So Chris, you were going exactly where my brain went for um, obviously Nori does nature-based, soil-based carbon removal. And so I was wondering, Toby, I know open air is about durability and all about longer-term permanence, but how did you balance what I think are somewhat competing interests of taxpayer dollars spending more for more durable carbon removal versus maybe spending less for current carbon removal and also allowing that money maybe to be used in other environmentally, for other types of environmental mitigation.
2: Yeah, I mean, these are great questions. And um, uh, Chris, I really appreciate your perspective on this because uh, thank you for, for um, liking our, our reverse mechanism. <laughs> um, I mean, there's a lot to say. First of all, we try to stay away from the, the nature-based versus engineered distinction um, and really focus on the characteristics of the specific CDR pathway, again, you know, additionality, durability, verification, and equity. One, I think key point is basically every quote unquote engineered CDR pathway is nature-based. It's based on some sort of natural process, whether it's a mineralization or what have you. So like, you know, and pretty much everything except a very like naturalistic planting of a tree is engineered on some level. Mm -hmm. And it's actually, you know, it's quote unquote technology if a human's planting that tree. So so, like, I think it's really important to focus on the characteristic of the specific CDR pathway as opposed to um, uh, the, the the sort of commonly applied labels. Um, in terms of the durability, we feel like just there's a really gap in the solution set for durable carbon removal i think that they're 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 the nature based solutions sorry i just did it. but um <laughs> forest reforestation afforestation regenerative agriculture are obviously all super important for a variety of reasons they also deliver all sorts of um non-ton non-ton measured ecosystem services and other benefits so i think that personally there are other policies that could that do and and should incent some of the scaling of of those solutions. Um, We just think there's a gap on the durable side. And we had a lot of people who wanted us to do a thousand year floor on the durability. And that would really, you know, limit the potential solution set. But we did want, you know, New York has a very robust agricultural sector. We have a very robust um, wood product sector. And so we wanted to um, also Provide an opportunity for solutions like biochar. Um, I don't know how familiar you are with. I mean, sir, you know, you know the general pathway, but enhanced rock weathering using quote unquote rock dust, ground up basalt as a soil amendment, which is a soil-based solution, which can benefit farmers. And as Nori Wells knows farmers conveniently have ways to spread powder on their fields already Mm -hmm. built. So like, you know, there's an existing delivery mechanism that we think has a lot of scale potential. So we wanted the policy to be able to accommodate those. And so like, we again, we just really tried to focus on creating a standards-based policy that's not picking winners and it's just letting the market and let innovation and let competition and let science deliver the best results. And I'm all for, and I, you know, we need to be doing more, spending more. I'm all for a policy to incent, you know, uh, uh, aforestation aforestation and reforestation, and also the preservation of existing forests. but but most of those things, well, the like avoided deforestation doesn't balance out a ton of emitted CO2. So like we really wanted to focus on pure removals that are gonna balance tons of emitted CO2.
1: So Chris, can you imagine a type of legislation like this gaining traction in the federal government? Is it got enough of a free market spin that Republicans would feel comfortable with it?
0: So so here's my pitch and thanks for bringing that up. Um, I approach this from a philosophical perspective that might be slightly different from like the average conservative slash Republican. My view is that when it comes to, like we, when it comes to climate change and carbon emissions, we expect individuals and private companies to be held accountable for their emissions, right? I don't think the government is any different. Mm -hmm. I think the government acts as an actor within the broad market space. Um, And so I think that the government's own emissions related to its activities. I mean, I'd want the government to have fewer activities than it does, but insofar as it does have activities, those should be taken into account because there is a social cost of carbon. Um, And so I I do think it makes sense for the government to actively compete within um, the carbon market. We'll we'll use that term um, to most cost effectively Um, offset the emissions that it produces insofar as it can't reduce them by actually like procuring energy from clean energy projects or whatever it might be. And so I, for example, with the Growing Climate Solutions Act, which we've talked about on this podcast, um, I think establishing a carbon market like that with the standards and all that, and the government being a part of the carbon market in terms of a a buyer would actually provide huge impetus for these types of markets around the country. Um, And so presumably the GCSA will be passing this year, um, and and I'd love to see some kind of follow up where the government actually starts to buy those kinds of offsets itself, um, and helping incentivize it that way, which I think would be would be really really good um, broadly speaking for this for this space.
1: Do you see a place where you can make a convincing argument that spending three hundred and fifty dollars a ton by the federal government is a good thing in the carbon removal space? I mean, I know your personal belief system, but for. I would imagine people in northern New York state, potentially for the population up there, potentially populations in the south, it's a hard pill to swallow, like that we're doing carbon, because they don't necessarily fully buy into climate change and that stuff. So how do you make the argument to people like that?
0: Yeah, I think it is obviously on the expensive side, especially compared to specific natural solutions. And so I think it'd be hard to justify from that perspective. um, If it's, kind of a blanket offset all emissions. If it's like a specific program intended to like enhance innovation and you tie it with p- potential like innovation, R&D and what that kind of stuff, then you might like have a good case for it. But I think in general, it would be kind of economic suicide for the federal government to reduce all of its, offset all of its emissions at $350 a ton. Um, and, and that's where kind of participating in a carbon market like GCSA would create and like paying for things like tree planting and uh, soil-based uh, sequestration, I think would be obviously more financially effective.
1: Yeah, Toby, so sort of the same question for you. I know you said you're before a committee today and within the New York State Assembly, and I'm assuming there were some maybe doubters of potent, maybe not doubters of carbon removal, but maybe doubters of climate change on that on that panel. So what what is your argument to them if they, or do they make this argument to you that we don't want to spend this much money, you know?
2: Yeah, so I, um, I there, there were no doubters of climate change, thankfully, that we were talking here. Um, one point on the federal, there are a couple of bills pending that I, they're not published yet, and I'm not maybe at liberty to say who the um, legislators are who are, are going to be introducing them, but there are a couple of federal CDR procurement bills um, out there that are, I think, that we'll see the world soon. And one of them is based on scaling up to, um, to balance federal government Emissions as they are measured. And one thing about cost, all of these bills, the New York bill, we're starting at, I don't, can't do this math in my head, but like 100,000 over 61.5 million were, were, you know, whatever that is, 0.1% ish of the overall 2050 target. So we're starting very small. And the price tag in, um, in uh, 2025 is $35 million, which to you and to to, the, to us chickens is a lot of money, but like to the a state like New York that has a budget of a couple hundred billion dollars, it's actually not that much money. And um, so I think there is a climate necessity to do this. Like one question that a state legislator in New York might reasonably have is why should New York do this? And um, I do think there's a, you know, there, there is an ethic of the state should do its share. I mean, this is a waste management issue and we should all be cleaning up this trash that we've been putting in the sky for over a hundred years as via a negative externality of the sort of legacy fossil economy. Um, but there are also a lot of other uh, industrial development and jobs benefits. The CDRLA is not an innovation or a research and development policy. There's quite, you know, we can always use more, but there's quite a bit of money out there for research and development and innovation. This is a policy to help markets scale and markets need help scaling at an early stage, particularly a market like this, where, you know, all the buyers are, are volunteers because um, we do not have an effective compliance market yet. We do not have a price on carbon. And so the purpose of the legislation is to scale the markets and invest a little bit now so that we can buy, get down the cost curve. I mean, I'm sure all of you are familiar with the, all the different research out there. You know, there's a great paper by um, Habib Bazarabadi and Klaus Lochner out of Arizona State University about buying down the, path of the cost of direct air capture. And with an aggregate spend of like an order of a billion dollars is what they estimate would take to like get this single CDR pathway to sort of that hundred dollar level. And the earth shots that the DOE is doing for carbon removal, again, at hundred dollars. I mean, that, these things all together, I think are gonna help get us there. But, you know, they say the states are the laboratories of democracy. Um, we're also the laboratories for this kind of policy. And so I think it's really important to be innovating at a state level on this kind of policy. And then, but the policy can both scale across states, but also can be a model for ad- adoption at larger federal scales.
1: Um, so, one kind of twist on the question of cost is, you know, what if 350 isn't enough, right? I mean, we're seeing like the Stripes, the Shopify's, the Microsoft's paying a lot more for probably similar supply as what New York yep. would want quality, durable. Yep. Uh, I won't use nature, but I don't, I don't know what the right solution, what the right word is, but you know, you know yep. what we're talking about, deep sea, yep. that kind of stuff. So, yep. what happens if New York can't compete at this price? What's the alternative?
2: Yeah, um, well, there's a mechanism in the legislation for the money to roll over if, if you can't make enough qualified purchases year on year. So they just won't spend the money. Um, I believe, um, and I won't be able to prove this to you on this podcast, but I believe that with a 10-year delivery period in 2025, with an average maximum of $350, that that the procurement will be achievable. I also think it's likely that the bill is gonna shrink in its uh, in its monetary size through the legislative process, based on feedback that we've gotten. <laughs> you
1: know,
2: the, the, the 100,000 starting point and we're doubling year on year for the first five-year authorization mm-hmm. of the bill, that's like our opening, that's our opening bid and we're getting feedback and we're gonna have a revision of the bill probably in early March. And we can definitely scale it back. To me, the most important thing is to pass something that gets the, the public sector buying funding, however you wanna phrase it, durable carbon removal, as part of climate policy in new york's case as part of a net zero climate policy and again that 350 is an average so if if you do buy the 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 government in new york it will be the department of environmental conservation can buy some more expensive pathways but they have to be balanced out with some lower cost pathways so like biochar there's tons of biochar innovation happening in new york and biochar is like you know not 350 maybe it's 100 and maybe you know there is a durability question of biochar depending on how you you know biochar is a soil amendment there's some questions about whether it would meet the 100-year durability threshold but there are other things you can do with biochar that would um so like you're basically just going to have to balance you know and there's nothing in the bill that says a forestry project couldn't win couldn't win a bid it just has to demonstra- demonstrate to the department's satisfaction that it offers 100-year durability
1: yeah, that isn't that the tough the tough nut, which I won't go down the path of uh, yeah. verification and monitoring because that could yeah. be a whole another two-hour conversation. But Chris, so curious from your perspective and instinct, how bills like this could scale across the country and what what types of things would you tell open air to think about as they're thinking about places in the South or other areas of the country that might be less open or don't have net zero goals like New York?
0: Yeah, I think it's a really good question. And when you're looking at states like Texas being a very good example, um, where kind of some of the some of the members who are leaning somewhat into climate change, like for example, Dan Crenshaw, uh, but he'll lean in it from a distinct like oil and gas perspective saying we need carbon capture and storage to um, make sure that we like, keep the economic benefits, but also like protect the planet, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I would say that you have to sell it as a benefit to their economies. And in, in the case of Texas, especially, and, and this goes for most kind of like fossil fuel producing States, they're really worried about what all this clean energy stuff is going to do to their core industries. And and they're really hoping that carbon capture is kind of their silver bullet um, to prevent their, like their economies from kind of losing this huge chunk. Um, and I think it's like similar reason why Exxon is pouring like millions, if not billions into research on this and, and all that kind of stuff. And it's really kind of their go-to. So I would say trying to sell it as a benefit that if this innovation really takes off, it's the single best way for their States to continue their energy production, um, but without kind of the, the climate, um, negative impacts of it and all that. So I think that's probably kind of the, the way to approach it. But I think even with that, it's probably a pretty big list.
1: Yeah. Do you think that legislatures in states like Texas would buy into developing nascent industries rather than trying to save old industries, building on the new technologies, creating new opportunities? Or is that a bridge too far when you've got a huge oil and gas economy?
0: Potentially. I mean, it depends if, if those industries would be Texas-based industries. I mean, this is the way kind of states think and especially state legislatures. They're they're thinking about this from like how it benefits their specific state. So so if Texas is like offering these opportunities and all the companies with these nascent technologies are non-Texas based, what's what's the point for Texas, right? So if there's companies within Texas that could like create new jobs there, could leverage this innovation in the state, then then potentially, but you have to kind of really almost make that patriotic state argument.
1: And then Toby, I think that's what you guys are trying to do, right? You're trying to really hook into the, at least in this build, the New York infrastructure around CDR.
2: Absolutely, and uh, we're going to try Texas too, actually. Texas is about to release um, a group at University of Texas. You guys are probably familiar with the California Getting to Neutral report that was produced out of Lawrence Livermore National Lab a few years ago, which was basically assessing all of the scale Potential CDR pathways in um, California to get them to a notional 125 million ton annual removal goal, and Texas is producing a report like that. And Texas has some unique things going on. I mean, they're trying to win these these DAC hubs. They're trying to a lot of the uh, uh, incumbent oil, oil and gas, fossil gas companies, fossil carbon companies are are buying up leases in the Gulf to sequester CO two, and so like there's a lot of opportunity there. So t- Texas has a big opportunity. Houston is a huge center for you know obviously the Incumbent or legacy fossil economy, but also the new green economy. I mean, Greentown Labs open there. There's tons, there are a lot of cool startups in Houston. So, like, there is this industrial development opportunity. And Chris is exactly, I think, aligned with the way we think about it. And that's what you have to hook into in a state like Texas, um, which where we haven't started, but in Arizona, we have obviously a reddish slash purple state, but definitely red at the state level. You know, you'd think not great prospect, but. Uh, Arizona State University is there, and one of the most famous direct air capture uh, inventors in the world, Klaus Lackner, is at Arizona State University. They have a very robust Center for Negative Carbon Emissions there that's doing all sorts of great research. And uh, I'm not sure if it's a local legislator there, but there is a Republican legislator there who thinks this technology is super cool. So like we're leaning into that piece of it, and it's, it would be more of an innovation and like an um, industrial development policy purely. And, and Arizona with less highlighting of the climate benefit that you might do in a net zero state, but um, I think the larger point is that we are intending it as an adaptable policy framework and we really think that a successful policy has to reflect the, both the legislative um, context of each state, but also the political context, the social context, and also to a certain extent sort of the scientific geological context, mm-hmm. like what CDR pathways make sense. So maybe a policy and we were working in the Pacific Northwest and a policy in the Pacific Northwest needs to figure out how to leverage and benefit the forestry industry, for example. Um, So like, I think you just really need to like go state by state and think about what's going to be important for that state. The other thing is you need people. So like our group, we're trying to like, you know, there's tons of work to be done. And I I would say also it's pretty fun. It's like super interesting. You learn a lot every day. And we're just trying to get citizen advocate groups in, in as many states as possible who are interested in kind of like pioneering this idea and seeing what they can do with it in each state.
1: Cool. Uh, so as we have been talking about, you know, a lot in the show generally, carbon removal is taking off. There's a lot, obviously, of conversations around net zero approaches. So if governments don't step in to regulate the market at an early stage, what do you think will happen? And so Toby, I'll start with you and then Chris, maybe you'll just deny the premise of the question that the government should regulate markets. I don't know, but We'll get to you second.
2: Well, I mean, are you uh, by, by regulate markets? You, so you're saying no, no, no government procurement policy like CDRLA, no price well, I mean, carbon. If,
1: if we don't get legislation passed of some sort to either regulate the carbon markets through. What you know would be more traditional mechanisms, like what has happened in California, or potentially like procurement, where at least the government is involved. What do mm-hmm. you see happening to the carbon markets in like the next ten to fifteen years? If it's strictly voluntary, no government,
2: <laughs> they'll stay small. I mean, like the you know, and they're we're not going to get to gigaton scale.
1: What about you, Chris?
0: Uh, I'm going to just add one thing that I wanted to say earlier, but I forgot about actually. Um, I think one of the big issues and this is there's really interesting article in the hill I read earlier today about how all these climate policies won't really matter much if we don't do something about the permitting process around them Mm -hmm. and I think in particular for carbon capture projects there's a lot of issues in terms of the the permitting and um, kind of the regulations around it and and it's just very convoluted and it's a huge drag on innovation and on kind of the, the industry scaling in the market. Um, and so I would say there's, there's very much kind of like a, a market market-based answer there saying like, well, there's a lot of things the government's already throwing in the way of these projects. And like one stat was that 42% of energy projects currently backlogged under the national environmental policy act are clean energy projects and only 15% are fossil fuels. And so, it's, it's kind of paradoxical that these environmental regulations are the ones holding back these clean energy projects. And so, and I I think there is appetite in the market to do these kinds of carbon capture um, projects. And you kind of see that with some of the investment that's happening and like Elon Musk, like his funding and all that. um, I think one of the biggest things we can do is actually make it easier for them to actually do that. And then I'm not at all against kind of ideas like these auctions and and R and D and all that kind of stuff to help leverage these nascent technologies. But I think even, even if you throw billions of dollars at it, it's not gonna do much if it takes five years for every um, application to be processed by, uh, by the government. And I think that's definitely an
2: area of potential bipartisan agreement. And in fact, the Bipolis and Party Policy Center, um, sorry, uh, they are working on this. And like uh, John Fishman from there just like wrote a big, great piece about this recently. And it really is something that's holding back not just carbon removal, but but deployable of renewables and particularly transmission. I mean, and a lot of times it's the left that's doing the NIMBYism that is keeping some of these projects from going. So like, you know, there's plenty of blame to go go around
1: on, on that front. <laughs> it's the unsexy part of being an environmental advocate, right? Like the permitting, the going to the government, asking permission, nobody really wants to talk about it because really it makes people fall asleep, so. your your constituents aren't out there going yes please make it this easier um but anyway with that because i think it's kind of nice to end on a note of agreement not that there was too much debate today but um still i think we all agree that the permitting process is a place where anybody and everybody could focus chris can you give us a little good news before we end the show
0: well, you know, with me, everything always somehow comes back to nuclear energy. So, <laughs> Or Texas,
1: you, or the Texas grid. Or
0: Texas, yeah. I'll give you two different um, pieces of good news related to the, to the topic. The first one is that West Virginia officially repealed its ban on nuclear energy um, projects. So um, I think that'll be really interesting to see um, how the state can attract potentially some advanced nuclear reactors to retrofit on their coal plants that might be closing. Um, So I think that's a really interesting one. And then um, a second bit of good news, which is also personal, is um, Colorado, uh, there's a bill in Colorado that's being introduced um, to have the state enact a study on the potential of small modular reactors in the state. And Colorado has no nuclear right now, so they could open the the, the possibility of having nuclear. And I'm actually testifying in favor at the uh, Colorado Senate next week. So that's uh, another piece of good news. Cool.
1: West Coast swing for Chris yep so all right well thank you both for joining me today toby it was great to have you and anybody who's listening i can't imagine you haven't heard of it but he's at open air collective he was just talking about how they could use lots more citizens to help them pass some of these bills so if you have any interest go to their website and i'm sure you can find out more with that have a wonderful weekend and thank you both for being here today take care